Hello, Monetization Nation. Welcome back to another episode with Sam Malikarjanan. Sam is the co-author of the book, Inbound Commerce, How to Sell Better Than Amazon, which ironically is the number one bestseller in its category on Amazon. In today's episode, we'll discuss inbound commerce and the buyer's journey. Tectonic shifts are constantly transforming the earth and business, causing destruction and huge growth opportunities. I'm Nathan William, the host of Monetization Nation, where we learn how to leverage business tectonic shifts to transform monetization. Tell me about what you think is the biggest tectonic shift that is affecting businesses today. Uh, privacy is definitely one. So privacy literacy, people still think their phone is listening to them when the truth is scarier. It's that Facebook's AI actually is that good. Um, but there's, there's a trend towards privacy that I think is important that we, we've never worried about are the things we're doing to people, things that create value for them, or do they just optimize for whatever our metrics are? Um, We've never given people control over, you know, what, how can my data be used? How can it be monetized? How can it be literally, almost literally spent at a small business versus a large business? Like, like it'll be able to in our network. Um, the, the bent towards how do you actually give somebody a reason to give you their information? Um, I wrote an art, article once on the difference between being creepy and being awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you, if you think your phone is listening to you, that's creepy. Like I've rated 900 movies for Netflix willingly because I know they're going to use that data to make my experience better. Um, so I, I think that is a, a fundamental mind shift where all the growth hackers who is the sub subculture of marketing that just is always looking for the next trick that will get them a lot of growth really cheaply. Um, that's becoming like not only like arguably wrong, but it's becoming very, very ineffective business. Um, the other thing, and I know you, you probably get a lot of people saying this, COVID changed things. Um, it changed the nature of work and how we design teams. My whole company is remote, which scares the crap out of me because there are not a lot of fully remote unicorn tech startups. In fact, offhand, I actually can't think of any uh, fully remote unicorn tech startups and I still don't know, are we eventually going to have to have an office because the investors want it? We, you know, what do you lose with the collaboration, et cetera? Uh, but we've had to build from the ground up uh, to, to do it that way. Um, and that's definitely, that's, that's changed things. And then it's also changed things sort of like when you were a kid, if your parents caught you smoking, they'd make you smoke the whole pack until you got sick. Not that that ever happened to me, right? <laughs> that's what's happened to digital exposure to us, right? We have been on back-to-back Zoom calls nonstop for a year. We have been scrolling through social media. So we're caught up. Nobody we know has, is doing anything new and interesting that we're not up to speed on. It's just this massive oversaturation of the digital experience that is going to have an elastic reaction in a, in a, in a very positive way, I think, um, where people are going to want to go outside. There's some e-commerce companies that I, I won't name, um, but it, it's literally one of their, their biggest threats is they're worried that uh, I, I told you earlier, what's something that, you know, a, a competitor can't do that you can do. The experience of leaving your house is not something e-commerce companies can really solve for. And that is now a valued and treasured experience. 
And so some of the e-commerce companies are, are worried that it's going to hurt their business because people are going to want to go back to retail stores. They're want to, going to want to be out in the world. Yeah. Um, and this like this obsessive connection that we've had with, you know, either desktops, laptops, but even more so mobile devices had oversaturated us so much that I think uh, I don't have data on this, but my, my suspicion and, you know, what I've seen, what I've studied is that it's, uh, it's really going to help us break that addiction. Uh, it's, you know, it, it made us smoke digital cigarettes until we were sick and threw up and then didn't want to do it ever again. That's a great analogy for what we've all been going through. Can you tell me what you think is your best monetization strategy? So this may not sound that interesting, but not enough people look at the basic underlying math. Um, I mean, when I teach, uh, when I taught, I don't teach at Harvard anymore, um, just covering things like the funnel, right? So you have a, a lifetime value of a customer you have, that gives you a target cost of customer acquisition. You have you know, leads or website visitors that convert into customers. Understanding that and then getting good at turning the dials in experiments um, that's sort of solved for different stages of the buyer's journey. It's, I, I'm not sure if it's my number one hack. It's definitely the number one mistake that I see everyone make is they're either, it's two extremes. Everybody's either like, we just need more website traffic as if that's gonna magically solve the problem. Um, or they say, they just focus on very, very bottom of the funnel stuff. Uh, they focus on like AdWords or they focus on A-B testing their, their landing pages or whatever. They just focus on that. Um, and they ignore sort of the whole picture of the buyer's journey. Um, the, the biggest hack that I have though is, um, I'm pretty sure it was Google when they, well, okay. I won't call them out by name, but whatever. I already did. Uh, when somebody invested in HubSpot, they threatened to tattoo, we are not the user on the inside of our eyelids. Um, and whether it's marketing, product design, et cetera, people focus too much on themselves and they don't think really about what, uh, what the customer needs that nobody else is providing. Uh, so it's there's a framework called Blue Ocean Strategy, where I'll simplify it. It's just you map like all the things that matter to customers, all of the people who do those things and who are and how good they are at it, and look for the chunk of things that matter to your customers that no one's good at. Do that. Um, under like really taking the time to understand, you know, is it education? Is it is it simplification? Is it is it cost? It's usually not cost. You know, I, that's the easy answer, uh, but it's usually not. Um, if you take that, th take the time to take that level of understanding and combine that with math, math is just the language we use to tell the stories of groups of people. Um, they're not, they're not actually numbers. Uh, so if you take both of those extremes, you're really good at understanding the story and then you get good at expressing the story of groups of people who are your customers using math, then you'll, you'll create a killer growth engine. So you've written this book called inbound commerce, how to sell, how to sell better than Amazon. Uh, can you just start off by telling us what is inbound commerce? So in, inbound commerce was a riff on the term inbound marketing, um, which was a concept that <laughs> what if instead of being as obnoxious as possible, marketers actually tried to create experiences that people wanted to have. So instead of interrupting people, could you create something that that drew them to you instead of cold calling, for example, could you create content that educated them? It's how I, it's how I discovered HubSpot um, to begin with. Uh, it, it was a good, it, it was a good concept that we, it was the world we wanted to live in, 
Um, but conveniently, over the last 20 years, it's also become the best way to do business. If you just cold call people, you're not going to be nearly as effective as if you're really good at educating them um, and creating that sort of inbound experience to, to bring them to you. Um, there's, there's a stat I love to share, which is this, this survey was done years ago, but um, we used to do this survey called Who Do You Trust? And we had like at the top, you'd see like, you know, uh, doctors and firefighters. And in the middle, you'd see like baristas and professional sports athletes. And then at the bottom, you'd see uh, used car salesmen and uh, lobbyists. And below that, you would see marketers. I think this survey was done in 2015 or so. So like not to get political, but think about what the world was in 2015. We lost to those people, right? We lost to like politicians and lobbyists. Uh, and it was, I think like, if there was ever a statistic that should make marketers take a look at themselves and say like, what is it that I'm actually, you know, doing in the world and the value that I'm creating, that was it. And so we took the concept of inbound marketing, which had generally relied on, it was a, it was a B2B thing. It was like getting sales reps talking to people and customer support teams talking to customers. Um, and e-commerce was, you know, was this really growing phenomenon, but it was, it actually had a unique challenge, which was that it was, a very, uh, a very cold and unpersonalized experience. And one of my one of my favorite quotes comes from Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. And he, when they added negative reviews to the website, I'm paraphrasing, but he got a letter from his investors saying, "You know, Jeff, we know you think the internet's going to be big and all, but you obviously don't know how to run a business. Uh, you make money when you sell things. Why would you do anything to discourage somebody from buying?" And Bezos replied. We don't make money when we sell things. We make money when we help people make a purchase decision. And that was the sort of core goal that we wanted to communicate with inbound. How do you create an experience that people like? It's relevant to who they are, where they are in the buyer's journey. You're not just spamming your email list three times a week with a coupon code is not email marketing. Please stop it. Um, you know, helping them make that decision, helping them discover something they hadn't been looking for helping them learn what they need to do, like what they need to know in order to decide to buy it, helping them buy it, and then continuing to drive that, that repurchase cycle. Um, it is ironically something Amazon is very bad at, even though a lot of smart people have focused on it because they are the everything store. You can't be knowledgeable. You can't be helpful if you're trying to be everything. So I'll, I'll spoil the, the whole book for people. You don't, you don't need to buy it. Uh, the, the core was one, compete in the research phases of, of the buyer's journey. Stop like just bidding on the where to buy cheap, whatever. And I used to be CMO at uh, cheaphumidors.com. So I'm not judging you, uh, but like cheap humidors was in the name. Um, but like, we've got to, we've got to grow beyond that, that, um, that bottom of the funnel concept. So compete for the, the research and awareness, get good at teaching good at helping people make a decision, which is not necessarily about price. It's not necessarily about spamming them with coupons. Um, and then solve for customer lifetime value. It's something we do in software that we've never really done in retail until the last like five or so years is the core of really what I taught at Harvard. Um, this, this study's out of date too, but uh, Kissmetrics did a study on Starbucks. They have an average order value of about $5. Uh, they have an average customer lifetime value of $14,000. So if you're a Starbucks marketer, you're not trying to spend $2 to sell a $6 cup of coffee. You're trying to spend like $2,000 or $3,000 or $5,000 to acquire and retain and monetize 
a $15,000, $14,000 customer. Um, and digging into the data, I did an informal survey of HubSpot employees. Our average LTV was like $30,000 just because we drank a lot of coffee. Like, would have been worth it for Starbucks to just put a barista in our front office um, and get just get really good at, you know, instead of having a thousand versions of the same thing, uh, unless your customers really like buying every variation of that thing, how do you create value that's broad across the things that they might be interested in? Um, once they buy from you, does not mean they are now a customer. That's Please take that out of your data management system. Uh, once they buy from you, it means they have purchased one thing from you, but they are back in the awareness and research phase of the buyer's journey for whatever they're going to buy next. That's, again, to stop spamming them with the, the coupon code. So that was the concept behind inbound commerce. And how to sell better than Amazon, they can't educate. They're not going to create demand for things. Uh, if I know what I want to buy, I, I can go to Amazon. But they, they're not going to win the research and awareness phases of the buyer's journey. Um, and they're not going to help people make as good decisions because they can't. They don't know your subject matter as well as you do. Uh, and they're not going to be as good at customer retention unless you let them. Unless you let them. If you let it be about price, you let it be about how easy it is to buy, Amazon's going to kick your butt. If you let it be about a continuous cycle of educating and awareness and helping them make a decision, et cetera, you'll win the customer lifetime value battle, even against note that the title of the book is not how to sell more than Amazon. What advice would you give to a large company that's, that's being disrupted and uh, is facing tectonic shifts and is trying to save itself and survive? You have a good case study in the book about this one. If, you, if you're leading a large organization, you have to understand that it has been designed and refined for a specific purpose. And again, I don't have the statistics offhand, but the lifespan of a company on the Fortune 500 used to be like 75 years. They defined who you were. You were a Fortune 500 company. You were a Fortune 500 CEO. I think last time I looked at the statistic, it was down to like 15 years. Uh, and something like 70% of the companies on the Fortune 500 were, were like did not exist 10 or 20 years ago. So the pace of change has dramatically accelerated. And when I talk about the old way of designing companies with what I call the Lean Six Sigma century of the 20th century, how, to be, how do we be really efficient? Um, you have to uh, understand that your core organization cannot, cannot turn on a dime. It's not a speedboat. It's an aircraft carrier battle group if you're leading a large company. Um, and so you, you have a long-term goal of like, how do you solve for that? How do you help employees be able to act independently? How do you uh, create connections internally? Okay, that's great. It's a really hard challenge. Literally no one has solved it yet. So while I love ambition, um, relying on a, probably not a good idea. Um, but being self-aware like again, having a labs team, figuring out how you're going to kill yourself, um, how you're going to kill your own company. I don't want to say how you're going to kill yourself um, and how you would be competitive if somebody who didn't have your restrictions that made you so efficient. Efficiency is about restrictions and, and, and guardrails. If somebody didn't have those, could they create more value for your customers? I love talking about IBM with Project Chess. So there was like a, a study that said at, back in the day at IBM, it used to take nine months to ship an empty box because the processes were just that freaking slow. Um, and yet in, I think one year, IBM shipped the, um, the IBM personal computer, which the way they did that was they took good talent, 
not just like random people who, uh, you know, you want to put the good talent on the most profitable project. Okay. They took good talent. They freed them from the restrictions of the core company. They shipped them down to the middle of nowhere, a place that absolutely no one cared about, which is my home state of Florida. And they said, you can break all of the rules. You don't have to be vertically integrated. Uh, you don't have to do any of the stuff that has made IBM, IBM. Uh, and without that move, there would not be an IBM today. If IBM had continued leaning into computers aren't going to be a thing, we're going to continue being a mainframe company, there would not be an IBM today. Um, and that is an incredibly hard thing for large companies to process. The fact that I can be a $100 billion company today, it does not guarantee that I'm a company at all five years from now. Um, and so creating that challenger mindset inside your own organization, creating formal processes around it, um, and creating, you know, the, the empowerment of specific teams with specific initiatives and always focusing on, is there anybody else who, is there anything I don't know about my customer? Never be the second person to know you're wrong. Is there anything I don't know about my customer that, you know, somebody could create value for them in a way that I wasn't expecting and, and, and kill your company really, really fast. Uh, so if you're a large company, Deloitte calls it the institutional immune system organizational immune system. I call it inst institutional inertia, which is like the bigger a company gets, the harder it is to turn or the harder it is to slow down. Uh, you know, object in motion, stage in motion until acted upon by bankruptcy. Don't, don't let that be you. Yeah. That's my, that's my big advice. I've seen that so many big companies, they're, they're so paralyzed by how they currently do things, their way of doing things that they, they cannot innovate they cannot take advantage of tectonic shifts and they get disrupted by the small companies who, who don't have those limitations. Um, so I see it now in the industry I'm working in though. So it's an industry, again, wonderful people, but it's like multi-generational. Like I run this company, my dad ran this company, his dad ran this company. Um, and it's hard to understand. Like we used to name our families after what we did. People forget like Wainwright and you built wagons and, and things like that. Um, and it's hard for people to think that this, this thing that seems so fundamental to the way the world is to, to like the nature of like their experience of life on earth is actually quite transient. Um, so that is the, I, I probably sound paranoid uh, and there's an element of that, right? But it's, it's not about paranoia as much as it is about the avoidance of hubris uh, and the avoidance of the fact that what matters to you is what is going to continue happening and what you think should happen and what you don't think is possible uh, is what can't uh, because those are the companies that don't make it. Thank you for sharing. That's so important and so real. And, and if we don't adapt to those tectonic shifts as a big company, we will not make it. I really like the movie, um, The Pursuit of Happiness. And you, you share uh, the, an example from that movie in your book. Would you tell us a little bit about that? So it's a great movie, Will Smith, great movie, but it has always like sat in the back of my mind, just bothering me. Uh, part of the premise of the movie is that he built a device that he's trying to sell to hospitals and doctors that takes a slightly better image for significantly more cost. And I see this actually a lot in the tech startup space where engineers build something that's really cool to them. It's a very, they spend a lot of time, a lot of brain power, a lot of money building something that is an improvement over what 
may already exist in the space. Um, but it's not necessarily, first of all, it may not create enough value to be worth the extra cost. That's like a very straightforward question that you should always challenge. Just because it's better does not mean that it is something that people want. Like I, th that, is, that is a sentence that does not make sense to a lot of really smart people. Just because it's better does not mean people want it. Deal with it. We don't have time to go into the psychology of that. Just like understand that that's a fact of life. Um, and then, but as a, a business, don't, like again, I, I keep coming back to this, uh, this obsession with co coming to your customers. Don't um, focus on what you would use. Don't focus on what you would find interesting and sort of like that marginal increase just because it's a really interesting mental challenge for you and it's, and it's a, a, an achievement of engineering or, or whatever your, your business is. Um, we we're struggling this, with this right now. We came into this industry, um, you know, our, our CTO's background is machine learning and, you know, I come from a marketing background and we thought we were going to go toe to toe with Facebook, right? Like how do we, you know, beat Facebook and make the real world better. Um, and then we, we, we do have this, this DNA on my team where we, we try to challenge our, anything we, we hold as a, as a core concept. We try to challenge it pretty frequently. Um, we could build the world's most sophisticated advertising targeting platform on the planet. It does not matter if you can't buy it, right? If there's no directory of like where the billboards are and like how to buy them, or, um, and again, like when I, when I talk about hubris, that, that was not a hard problem to solve. Like, spoiler alert, we're going to launch that in two weeks. Um, or, you know, the, I, I talked to a, another company and they're like, you know, our biggest challenge is there's a lot of turnover in uh, the ad sales space for sports stadiums is, is what they specialized in. And every time somebody quits, nobody remembers like the dimensions of the ads that we have available. And I really got frustrated. I'm like, that is a stupid problem to have. How is that a, an unsolved problem? Um, or like, you know, one of our network partners, they have, they had 18,000 screens they're, they're selling ads on and they're using a spreadsheet to manage their inventory. I'm like, I, I get so frustrated. I, I still am actually coming to grips with this because it's really just been over the last six to eight weeks that I have stopped everything I'm doing and just started talking to as many people as I can in this industry and asking them questions that I just would not have thought to ask before. Um, and really not not building the, the pursuit of happiness machine, right? Like we, we actually probably will not hire machine learning data scientists this year. We're going to hire UX people yeah. and just figure out like, how do we make it super easy for people to do things that they've never done before in a context they don't understand. Um, and I'm actually still working on selling that story internally. So Kyle, if you're listening to this, we'll have a conversation in our one-on-one. -on -one. He's my head of product strategy. Uh, but like, um, you know, that is uh that is, it's really hard. It's emotionally and intellectually hard. And so that movie is something that every, everybody who's an entrepreneur or anybody, who, anybody who's a professional, go watch that movie and just let it bother you forever. Am I building something that I think is cool and interesting, or am I actually solving the biggest, most valuable problem my customers have? I love that. And, and so often we try to solve it by giving them every single feature possible. And by doing that, we mess it up. Because if, if our product requires people to have to take a training to figure out how to use it or read a user's manual, right? We're, we're taking away from so much of the success the product could have. Our, our product has to be so simple that people can just start using it and figure it out and intuitively use it effectively. Thank you so much, Sam, for sharing your stories and knowledge with us today. 
Here's some of my key takeaways from this episode. Number one, instead of interrupting our customers through methods such as sales calls or ads on social media, we should attract them by creating valuable content and experiences targeted to them. Number two, we need to have the entire buyer's journey in mind if we want to gain a lifetime customer. Number three, our buyer's journey should be a continuous cycle of providing education and value. Number four, a one-time buyer is not a customer. They go back to the first stage of the buyer's journey after they have made a single purchase. Number five, we need to have a challenger's mindset. If we don't adapt to tectonic shifts, we're not going to make it. It is essential that we frequently challenge our business methods and systems. If you enjoyed this interview and want to learn more about Sam or connect with him, you can find him on LinkedIn or visit his website, onescreen.ai. And there's links to both of those sites in the blog post for this episode at monetizationnation.com. Do you want to be a better digital monetizer? Then please follow these channels to receive free digital monetization content. Number one, you can get a free monetization assessment of your business or subscribe for free to the Monetization e-magazine at monetizationnation.com. Number two, you can subscribe to the Monetization Nation podcast or YouTube channel. And number three, please follow Monetization Nation on Instagram and Twitter. Do you use inbound marketing? If so, what is your best inbound marketing strategy? Please join our private Monetization Nation Facebook group and share your insights with other digital monetizers. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I wish you success in your marketing efforts. Do you want to become a better digital monetizer? To receive great monetization stories and secrets, please go to monetizationnation.com and join free. And if you liked today's episode, please subscribe to the show and share it.